Chapter 10 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gauntz. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 10 The Supernatural Drama. There is a predisposition on the part of the populace and also of most of the reviewers to regard any play which employs the supernatural as especially imaginative. Such a work is considered particularly difficult to accomplish, and the result is commonly labeled literary in the laudatory connotation of the term. It is considered difficult to invent a devil with horns and a tail, and comparatively easy to create an Iago devoid of those unusual appendages. It is considered especially literary to set forth a five o'clock tea given by a guinea hen, whereas, presumably, it would not be literary to exhibit an afternoon tea given by a society woman. To the popular mind it seems highly imaginative to invent a fawn through whose body you may shoot a bullet without hurting him, but it would not, apparently, be imaginative to create a man whose viscera would be disturbed by such a transit. It is considered poetic to invent a piper whom children follow because of some magic in his music, Presumably, it would not be poetic to create a man whom children would follow because they liked to play with him. Any a priori judgment is uncritical, because it denies the possibility that a new work may prove an exception to the rule on which the judgment has been based. But if the popular mind must assume an a priori judgment of these exhibitions of the supernatural, it might more safely presume them to be less difficult, less imaginative, less, in the real sense, literary, than plays which reproduce the natural. In the infancy of the human race, as in the infancy of every individual, for the mental history of each of us repeats the mental history of mankind, all stories were supernatural, the reason being that the supernatural is immeasurably easier both to fabricate and to appreciate than is the natural. And the supernatural is easier to invent and to understand because it requires less maturity of imagination. Imagination is the faculty for realization. Contrary to the common belief, children are, as a rule, incapable of imagination. They tell themselves stories of ghosts and goblins and fairies because they are unable to realize men and women and children. They invent exceptions to the laws of life because they cannot understand the laws. They wonder at a dog that talks because they have not learned to wonder at a dog that merely barks. So, in its infancy, the human race told itself stories of miracles, and considered the exceptional divine. It has required a more matured imagination to perceive that divinity is evidenced not in some scission in the continuity of man's experience, some willful illegality of nature, but in law itself, majestic and immutable. The function of imagination is to discover truth. The function of art is to tell it. Myths and fables are of service only as an easy and shorthand means of indicating simple truths. The unusual is of value in art only in so far as it calls attention to the usual in life. Exceptions are important only as they indicate the rule. To prefer miracles to laws, to dally with the exception rather than to delve for the rule, is to exercise not the imagination but the fancy. As the wisest of American critics, Mr. W. C. Brownell, has remarked, imagination and fancy differ in that, both transcending experience, one observes and the other transgresses law. 
Now, of course, a supernatural fable may be faithful to the laws of life, may, in other words, embody an imaginative vision. But in practice, in this present age of ours, a reversion to the infancy of art more often indicates an irresponsibility of fancy, an unwillingness on the part of the artist to undertake and carry through the lofty task of transmuting the actual to the real. The fancy is a dangerous faculty, because its exercise is easy and is invariably attended by great good fun, whereas to exercise imagination is laborious and cannot be accomplished, to speak figuratively, without fasting and prayer. All that M. Rostand had to say in Chanticleer might have been said more profoundly if he had realized his characters as men and women. The piece becomes imaginative only in those passages in which it becomes human. At all other moments it is merely fanciful, the jeu d'esprit of a mind that dallies instead of the great task of a mind that toils. Since beauty is synonymous with truth, as Keats has taught us, it is only by imagination that beauty can be created. All that fancy can contrive is prettiness. It is usually an artist with a dainty fancy who chooses to tell us tales of skipping fawns and magic pipes but it requires an august imagination to reveal to us the beauty inherent in the common life of every day. Sir James Barry displayed a pretty fancy in Peter Pan, but in what every woman knows he revealed a beautiful imagination. Of these two plays by the same author, the natural is immeasurably more imaginative than the supernatural. But if it is a fallacy to prejudge that a supernatural play must be more imaginative, it is no less a fallacy to accord it a priori to a higher literary rank than a play of ordinary life. A play deserves to be laureled as dramatic literature only when it expresses, in terms of the technique of the theatre of its age, some truth of human life that is important to humanity. Fine writing does not make dramatic literature. Verbal felicity in dialogue is a beauty that is only skin-deep. The real literary value of a play depends upon the symmetry and strength of its skeleton and the vitality of its flesh and blood. The Thunderbolt is a greater work of dramatic literature than Chanticleer, because it is more profoundly and consistently imagined, in other words, more real. Yet in the Thunderbolt there is not a single line that is quotable for verbal beauty, while in Chanticleer there are pages and pages that are marvels of the wizardry of words. The best-written speech in Mr. Marx's The Piper, the address to the wayside image, is, dramatically, an error. It is written charmingly, but a master of dramatic literature would not have written it at all. Supernatural plays afford their authors opportunities for verbal flights of fancy which are denied to authors who aim to paraphrase the speech of ordinary men and women, but the task of the latter is no less a feat of literary art. A greater literary imagination is displayed in these bare, undecorative lines of the first act of the Thunderbolt. Ah, Heath, the dining-room. Yes, Mr. Elkin, that's over, sir. Lines through which, as they come to us in their context, the full pathos of death looks out upon us with dim, unweeping eyes. Then in such a line as Monsieur Rostand's, Que des coques rococo pour ce coq plus cocasse, of which the only ground is an astounding rebound of sound. In one particular respect, supernatural material is especially hazardous for the dramatic artist. The cornerstone of the dramatic art is the freedom of the will. No conflict of wills can afford a true dramatic interest unless the wills of the participants are absolutely free. 
Now, if, in a story, certain characters are endowed with supernatural powers while the others are not, no truly dramatic conflict can be possible between the one side and the other. We are asked to watch a game in which we know the dice are loaded. In the last act of The Fawn by Mr. Edward Knobloch, the other characters merely are puppets whose wires are pulled by the supernatural hero, and in The Piper the people of Hamlin are at all times powerless against the magic of the mountebank. These conceptions abnegate the very possibility of drama. If, then, a playwright is to use the supernatural at all, it is surely wiser for him not to adulterate it with the natural, but to conceive all of his characters in accordance with a common convention. This is what Monsieur Rostand has done in Chanticleer. His characters all have a fair chance, because all are equally superactual. He has displayed consummate tact in entirely excluding human beings from his story, a tact which expresses itself very cleverly in the concluding line, Chut, passez le rideau, vite, voilà les hommes. It is probable that Chanticleer would have succeeded in Paris if Coquelin had lived to play it, but it is not surprising that in the hands of Monsieur Lucien Guitry, an admirable actor of modern roles but not an eloquent elocutionist, it actually failed. For of the six theatric poems of Monsieur Rostand, it is assuredly the least dramatic. It is not so much a play as a lyrico-satirical extravaganza. We may best bring ourselves to understand its special quality if we view it as a result of the logical and natural development of those tendencies which M. Rostand exhibited in his earlier works. M. Rostand is the most successful playwright of the present age, but it has been evident from the outset of his career that he is by instinct less a dramatist than a theatricist. He conceives a play not as a serene and orderly development of a single inherent dramatic idea, but as an agglomeration of a myriad of isolate theatrical effects. His eagerness for effective moments, or momentary effects, stamps him of the race and lineage of Victor Hugo. Like Hugo, he makes a play by stringing together a multitude of startling theatrical devices, the defect of this method is that, as it is developed, it leads to greater intricacy, whereas the tendency of the highest dramaturgic art is always toward a greater simplicity. The simplest, the most classic of his works, is Le Samaritain. Already in Cyrano it was evident that he would become progressively more intricate from work to work. L'Aiglon indicated still more emphatically his developing avidity for multifarious detail, and now at last in Chanticleer, we can no longer see the forest for the trees, or rather for the wildwood undergrowth which riots in profuse entanglement. The dramatic theme in Chanticleer is the tale of the eternal struggle of the artist, possessed with a sense of the sacred necessity of his mission, to adjust himself to a society that fails to understand him and to accept him at his own self-valuation. But this theme is overgrown with a myriad minor satirical intentions the satire of boulevard cynicism in The Blackbird, of social pretension in The Guinea Hen, of academic criticism of poetry in The Chickens, of pedantry in The Woodpecker, of literary criticism of music in The Chorus of Toads, of aestheticism in The Peacock, of what may be called George Sandism in The Pheasant Hen, and so on ad infinitum. Unless we had clearly understood his progressive trend toward unnecessary intricacy, we might easily have wondered why M. Rostand should have bothered to invent the whole elaborate machinery of his magnified barnyard 
to serve as a vehicle for satirizing such everyday foibles as all these. Surely it would have been not only simpler but much funnier to exhibit a society woman behaving like a guinea hen, as heaven knows how many do, than to set forth a guinea hen behaving like a society woman. The same increasing intricacy that Monsieur Rostand has exhibited as a playwright he has displayed also as a poet. His earliest pieces, like Les Romanesques, revealed him as a new Théodore de Bonville, a writer of pretty and witty verses, dainty and dallying, delicate and deft. His gifts were those of a minor rather than a major poet, and if he has since developed the magnitude of the major poet, he has done so by the unprecedented process of raising his gifts of the minor poet to the nth power. He is a big poet only by virtue of being the largest of the little poets of the world. His supreme merit, and his supreme defect, is cleverness. He is hardly an imaginative writer, but he has the most fertile and the most luxuriant fancy apparent in contemporary literature. He has achieved serenity of mood only in Le Samaritain, where an ecstasy of simplicity was imposed upon him by the sanctity of his material. In his other works he has shown himself always a chaser after butterflies. Even Cyrano, in his love scene, must define a kiss as a rosy dot upon the eye of loving, a quip unimaginable if the poet-hero were really and deeply moved. And, in the bewildering verbiage of Chanticleer, the extravagance of the poet's fancy is developed to the utmost excess. In his earliest works, M. Rostand loved to intoxicate himself with words, and the habit of verbal inebriety has grown upon him until, in Chanticleer, nearly every line seems to reel with a bedazzlement of fantasy. Surely this is dangerously near the art that defeats itself by being too artistic. In the published text of Chanticleer, the stage direction which describes the scenic setting of each act is written as a sonnet, and this needless audacity of cleverness gives us the clue to Monsieur Rostand's quality as a poet. These stage directions are fully as poetic as the text. Consider this concluding tercet of the description of the setting for the second act. Le ciel est de chez nous. Et lorsque lumine fumera dans un coin quelque humble cheminée, en croira voir fumer la pipe de corot. No other writer could have fancied that smoking the pipe of corot, and no other poet would have considered it worth while to do so in a stage direction. Monsieur Rostin's best effects are purely effects of words. His wit is verbal, his mirth a jugglery of sounds. Even his poetry is verbal. It is not the image that delights us, but the verse. Hence, as plays, his works demand elocution more than they demand acting. He needed Coquelin to read his lines with that bravura of incomparable voice. He is a consummate writer, surely, but he has the air of a spoiled child sporting in an illimitable playroom where all the toys are words. End of chapter 10